Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. This is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today it's Listener Mail on the podcast. Uh, We do that every Monday, so we'll be reading back some of the messages that you've sent in over the past week or two. Uh, Rob, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump right in with this uh, email about tumbleweeds. Go for it. Okay, this is from Nan. Nan says, Hi, Robert and Joe. Thanks for another great episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on a topic I deal with uh, many days of the year, but which few other people seem to be aware of. I work at a landfill in California that is constantly battling tumbleweeds. Though I thankfully haven't seen one moving while on fire, the biggest hazard we deal with is that they tend to blow into our drainage channels, rolling down the channels much like a Hot Wheels car on a track, and get stuck at our storm drain inlets, causing flooding and erosion that can potentially expose buried trash. Uh, oh, this this sounds kind of familiar. I think we talked about tumbleweeds clogging mm-hmm, ditches definitely. and culverts and drainage pipes and stuff. They're nature's wet wipes. If that statement confused you, by the way, go back and check out our episode. I think it was called The Soap Dragon. Yes, yes. (laughs) Uh, Anyway, Nan goes on. We do our best to remove the Russian thistle before it becomes tumbleweed, but there's often more than we can manage. Goats are our greatest ally in this battle. (laughs) They'll happily eat Russian thistle on extremely steep slopes that our maintenance crews aren't able to climb, eliminating potential fire and flooding hazards and keeping the landfill safe for everyone. I'm including a photo showing some of our goat landscapers at work, their great Pyrenees watchdog, and a huge pile of tumbleweeds clogging a drainage channel. For scale, the dog is about three feet tall. So, Rob, I suppose we should explain the picture we're looking at. Uh, there is a <laughs> – the dog looks kind of sad, but he's sitting there looking into the camera. And then behind the dog on the hill, uh, there, are, there are many goats scattered about. And uh, I don't know, calling back to part two of our episode, I don't know if the goats look much like tumbleweeds. Oh, really? I was thinking this – yes, finally I have some clarification. Uh, these tumbleweeds look vaguely goat-shaped. Yes. I don't know. I see a certain uh, synchronicity between the the form of the goat and the form of the tumbleweed. Um, my only regret is that we do not have a camel in the shot as well. Oh yeah, that would be good to have camels in the distance. So, uh, but wait, they look like a goat when they are under the wagon, right? Right. Okay. Unfortunately, we did not in time for this episode get any Mongolian listeners writing in to explain the goat and wagon thing. I, I still really hope we do. But, but I think these are essentially under the wagon because the, the, the tumbleweed under the wagon is the tumbleweed that is no longer mobile. It is no longer out there. It is here and it is stuck and it is immobile. Uh, and that's the same case with these tumbleweeds in this photo. They are stuck in the drainage ditch. They are not going anywhere. And uh, therefore, the goats are, are, are perfectly uh, uh, you know, in scale with them. The, uh, the dog, however, is much larger than the tumbleweeds. Yes, though, as we talked about, you know, when when all the tumbleweeds clump up, they form a, a mighty large pile, and it, mm-hmm. it starts calling to mind that um, that quote from the the botanical manual talking about them uh, in the the middle of the nineteenth century, before they even came to the North America, talking about them on the Russian steppe and describing a mass of tumbleweeds linked together as uh, I think it was like a giant in his seven league boots. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Nan finishes up by saying, looking forward to hearing part two of this episode. Take care, friends. Nan. All right. Well, thanks for sending that in. And we look forward to even more tumbleweed uh, uh, insight coming in from the, uh, uh, the great American desert and beyond. 
This is one I bet we're going to get a lot of mail about. Really? Yeah. I hope so. I, yeah, I think so. All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from Michael in Germany. Um, hey, Joe and Robert. Longtime listener, but my first submission. I just listened to the listener mail episode where you talk about how in ancient Greek, the future is perceived as behind and the past in front of you. This had me thinking of Plato's cave uh, allegory. He obviously conceived that story thinking in ancient Greek. Maybe there is a time component to it that is lost on us who think of the future as something that lies in front. The people in the cave are watching shadows in front of them projected by something behind them. As they keep progressing toward the exit of the cave, they are going forward in time discovering more truths about how the world really works. Somehow, the progress of the people in the cave makes a lot more sense to me when thinking about it with an added dimension of time. Greetings from Germany, Michael. You know, I hadn't considered this, but this is very thought-provoking. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, I guess we've touched on the cave before on the show. Uh, I don't know if it's the kind of thing we could ever do a, a full uh, treatment of, but I know it's come up a time or two. That's one of those things I don't know how – is that like something basically everybody learns about in high school or is it not as common as that? I don't think I learned about it in high school or okay. or if I did, was supposed to, I did not. It was one of those things where later on I would read other things and they would, of course, refer back to it. I feel like it's one of those things that's it's almost impossible to avoid for too long in life because somebody's going to re- uh, reference it and then you're going to say, well, what's that? I better look it up and find out. Well, it's worth looking up yourself if you actually don't know what we're talking about. But yeah, it's a famous allegory uh, uh, in in the writings of Plato about uh, the, the difference between uh, the you know ideal reality as things truly are and our perceptions of things, which he compares to uh, you know the shadows of things cast on the wall of a cave from the mouth of a cave, and we're only looking at the shadows, but we believe we're looking at the true forms, unaware that the true forms lie behind us in the mouth of the cave. There's a, a wonderful TED Ed video on this topic. If you're so, if you if you want just a, a real crash course in this, look for the TED Ed video, Plato's Allegory of the Cave. Uh, it's uh, it'll it'll get you where you need to go. Okay, I'm going to slide on over to the next message, which is also about our time travel episodes. This one was from Kevin. Kevin says, I just listened to your episodes on Time Traveler Zero. In the second episode, when you introduced the topic of time travel in sleep and dreams, my mind immediately went to the concept of rack to the future. In nautical parlance, a rack is a sailor's bed. The pun intended phrase is used to describe individuals in the Navy who spend all of their precious little free time asleep, thereby engaging in a form of personal time travel by hastening their perceived passage of time towards the day when deployment and its endless cycle of standing duty is over. Some people read or watch movies or work out and others simply rack to the future. I've never heard that expression. That's great, though. Yeah, no, me neither. It, uh, my mind went to like the rack, the torture rack at first, so I thought it had had something to do with that. But of course, that would uh, that would really have the opposite effect if you're putting yourself into uh, novel predicaments of pain. That's just going to uh, make time uh, feel like it's stretching out even further and further, and you're obviously not going to sleep in that condition. Uh, this also reminds me of something that's come up on the show before, but the the research about the uh, 
uh, the difference in the perceived length of time in retrospect versus in the moment and how that's mm-hmm. very often an inverse relationship, like things that feel like they're taking a long time in the moment shrink to a point in memory, whereas events that fly by really quickly in the moment tend to expand in memory. Yeah. Like it's hard to, it's often hard to to think back on times we were really profoundly bored because how ultimately how memorable is that, right? Right. Yeah. But especially novel experiences, you know, mm-hmm. when you're, you're experiencing something new and surprising, it goes by in the blink of an eye, but then you, you have usually a much more solid memory of it later on down the road. Right. All right. This next one uh, comes to us from Ziggy, and it's in reference to one of our vault episodes on sinkholes. Um, so Ziggy writes, I am currently listening to your vault episode on sinkholes part one. I am behind. Yes. I often have thoughts about episodes, but since I am usually a few weeks behind, I haven't felt that sending any of them would be useful. However, I grew up in a town where sinkholes were a part of everyday life. I grew up in a small mining town uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. We had large swaths of our town just fenced off. You were not allowed to go there. There had once been neighborhoods in this area, but the houses and shops had been demolished and everyone evacuated because it turned out the mine tunnels under these neighborhoods were caving in. We called this area the caving grounds. It was such a part of life that every year from kindergarten through eighth grade, we had to have a safety presentation at school about why we shouldn't go in them. People died, houses got swallowed up, all sorts of horror stories, including pictures. It was traumatizing for little me. Imagine my surprise uh, when they opened up a large portion of caving grounds and rebranded it as hiking and biking trails. In high school, we were suddenly not just allowed, but expected to run on land that we had been scared away from our entire lives. Nobody on my cross-country team ever fell in a sinkhole, but our shoes did get very orange. Iron mines will do that. Much of the caving grounds are still closed off. I'm not sure how they decided which portions were safe and which were not, but people who go in the closed-off part still do die. Don't swim in sinkholes, kids. Anyway, thanks for reading this, and I hope it was at least a little interesting. Growing up in the Upper Peninsula was an amazing childhood with very unique experiences. I didn't have that much exposure to other ideas and cultures, though, and your podcast has helped me to learn so much. Thank you for doing what you do, Ziggy. Oh, thanks, Ziggy. This is really interesting. I I was trying to snoop around and uh, figure out where you were talking about. I did find a blog posts on like sort of a travel blog about a uh, a place in the upper peninsula of Michigan called uh looks like it was called Negaunee maybe uh N E G A U N E E that has caving grounds on it I don't know if this is the the same place you're talking about but there are a lot of pictures on this blog post you can look it up and uh and uh it, it is very creepy cuz there are remnants of a now abandoned settlement so there's like an you know eerie abandoned playground and empty houses and and things like that oh and uh and just open pits where i guess there'd been some kind of pit mining going on yeah thanks for this email i mean it reminds me a little bit of uh of some of the um the the the, the areas that i grew up around uh, at one point that were that had been evacuated by the uh, Tennessee Valley Authority 
uh, mm-hmm. when they were uh, uh, creating some of their, uh, uh, in, in this case, a, a, a large man-made lake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and oh, so yeah. you would find the old homesteads where people had once lived and, uh, you know, sometimes there would be sunken graves. And other times, uh, one of the, the things that always sticks with me is that uh, the house would be gone. There'd be virtually you know, little or no sign of their, of people ever having lived here, but the, um, uh, but the the the, uh, the, the like the tulips or the uh, the buttercups I forget which that had once lined the walkway to the front porch they would still come up so you would have this kind of like ghost of a of a front yard still going on in the middle of the woods oh wow it's calling to mind like a a, a rock paper scissors type game but it's over time and the the flower defeats brick yeah yeah I think they were buttercups I think I, I seem to remember them being yellow. Okay, well, uh, Rob, if you're cool with it, I think we should move on to mentioning a couple of episodes in response to Weird House Cinema. So I'm going to do this first one from Stefan. Stefan says, Hey guys, thanks for a consistently great podcast. I wanted to write a few lines regarding your latest Weird House Cinema episode covering the Hungarian animation movie. That movie was Son of the White Mare. Uh, Stefan says, now I've not seen it yet, but when you started talking about the director's career and mentioned cartoons about a man named Gustav, some 30 year old childhood memories started to come back to me. The thing is these little cartoons called Gustavus were widely sold to European TV networks and used as fillers between scheduled programming Mm -hmm. as they don't have a dialogue in any language, just grunts and gibberish, which made them easy to market in various countries. (laughs) Uh, and now I vividly remember watching and liking them as a kid, and I must object a bit to you recommending the listeners to skip the Gustavus cartoons when checking out the director's filmography, a uh, little smiley face emoji. D- did we tell people to skip them? I, maybe we did. Yeah. Um, I, I guess we said something about like the, the ideal starting place would seem to be Son of the White uh, Mare, even right. though some of the other films were, were well-received. That you know this this I mean his his own mother said you will never make something as good as this. <laughs> I agree. Yeah. So Gustav did not seem to me to be the the artistic pinnacle of uh, of this animator's career. Uh, that that uh, animator was uh, Marcel Yankovic, the director of Son of the White Mirror. But anyway, Stefan goes on. Uh, what I remember most was how, for the lack of a better word, exotic these cartoons were for me as a kid growing up in affluent Scandinavia to see these crudely drawn gray cartoons from Eastern Europe filled with socialist realism and set to groovy lounge music. Uh, <laughs> I did recall thinking that the music choice in the Gustav cartoon I watched was pretty funny. Uh, anyway, Stefan says, thanks. Uh, anyway, thanks again for providing me with this memory. All the best, Stefan. <laughs> Oh, well, that's awesome! Is uh, I did not expect to hear back from anyone about the Gustav uh, shorts, but it, it's interesting to have a little more context on them. And uh, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that they would be memorable. Uh, I mean, grumbling and taking away a naughty child's slingshot is the same in every language. <laughs> it reminds me how I think we were talking about silent films on uh, the Invention podcast at one point, and like one of the early, the many sort of early shorts we were looking at was just a, a comic short about a child playing a, a water hose prank on an adult. Do you remember this? Oh, that was one of like the earliest movies, The Sprinkler Sprinkled. Yeah, It was yes. one of the, what was it? Was it Lumiere Brothers or something? I think that sounds right, yeah. Yeah. 
That was like one of the earliest silent films ever made. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that, that style of humor, uh, is, has, has long been established in, uh, in cinema and, uh, and in animation as well. Speaking of animation, I wanted to briefly bring something up that I, um, I, I had flagged to, uh, to, to bring up in the center of the white mirror episode. And, and then I didn't, but I thought I'd bring it up here. I was thinking about animation works of animation that kind of stuck with me and made me rethink what animation could do. Mm-hmm. And I distinctly remember either, either I was watching television as a, as a kid at one point, or somebody called me into the room to check something out. And it was this um, animated adaptation or, or at least an adaptation of part of Wagner's uh, uh, Rheingold uh, opera, and okay. uh, and it was uh, it was really interesting. I've I've, I've looked it up uh, subsequently, and it has uh, you know so I think some some pretty cool looking animation with some you know dwarves and sort of goblin looking creatures, and then just full opera. Like it's it's full opera. It's people singing uh, the the opera here. There's no dialogue uh, otherwise. And I remember being completely um, you know. Uh, taken off guard by this I, I looked it up and this would i think have been 1995 and it was an episode of a television program called opera vox so uh i, I wanted to throw that out there i wonder if anyone else uh, has a distinct memory of having seen this and it also i was trying to think was there some other weird adaptation of wagner that i saw as a child like something with that was either animated or fantastic and had ships in it. I don't know. I, I seem like I have another memory uh, where I was just astounded to see something that was opera that was also uh, some other medium. Are you thinking about the opening of Highlander 2, The Quickening? <laughs> no, but that is right. There's a little opera there, right? That's where yeah. Ramirez uh, uh, rematerializes. No, 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 no. You, you, no, I'm talking about when... Um, oh, no, uh, that's when, right. He, uh, that's right. He's, McLeod Bear is, is falling asleep. Yes. yes. <laughs> falling asleep, old man... Uh, McLeod falling uh-huh. asleep during an opera, but yes, then Ramirez comes back in like a Scottish Shakespeare performance or something. Yes. Yeah, it's a, you know it's it's a great work of theater, and therefore it, it incorporates <laughs> other mediums as well. <laughs> Michael Ironside busts up a puppet show at one point. You know, oh, I just remembered that. Wait, does he? I just made I thought I made that up, but maybe he. Well, maybe he goes he does. around busting up all kinds of things. Does he bust up a puppet shop? Oh, wow. Well, now I'm embarrassed. Uh, I think as you've implanted a false memory in my head. I mean, he busts up several instances of other people relaxing or having a good time. Mm. It, it, would be t- it would be totally uh, uh, in character. Like, there should be a scene where Michael Ironside just walks up to a child and takes away their dolly and stomps on it. <laughs> All right, here's another one. This one comes to us from Miguel. Hey, Robert and Joe, I have been meaning to write you guys for some time now, ever since I heard that Joe has finally come around to playing D&D. I have been eager to tell you both about the Cobalt Press bestiaries, although hesitant to write because I can't imagine that you both haven't already come across these books. Finally, I decided it was worth writing in on the off chance that you haven't already. Rob, you're going to have to explain because I actually have no idea what this is about. Well, you know, I was not familiar with this either. I've, I have to, to say, I've had my hands full with Dungeons and Dragons uh, monster manuals, uh, just with the the official publications that have come out. In fact, uh, my, uh, my my son was really interested in the drag, new Dragons book that came up, so we just got that in in the mail, and we're we're reading about various. Uh, uh, dragons and gym dragons and so forth. So this, if I am understanding this correctly, is uh, like a third-party supplement with just additional monsters and takes on monsters. And mm. uh, yeah, it looks really cool. 
Anyway, Miguel continues. There are three fifth edition bestiary books the company has published so far, and a fourth that was just announced this week. They have statted out many creatures that you guys have covered on the show. For example, the Leshy, the Hundun, and even the Nino. I am always very excited when you two touch on a creature that I have heard about from these books. It's nice to get a deeper look into the creatures beyond the few paragraphs the books are limited to. And as always, I find endless inspiration from the research you two have put together. Um, I don't get the impression that either of you run a D&D game, but I suspect that you both would enjoy thumbing through Tome of Beasts 1 and 2, and the Creature Codex. Perhaps if you're feeling up for it, you can suggest the books to your DMs, and maybe, just maybe, we'll end up facing off against the subject of a future episode. Anyways, I love the show and wanted to thank you for all of the fabulous ways you have blown my mind and influenced my homebrewed D&D world and campaigns. I'm still setting on a quote you guys dropped in an episode. I can't remember which episode for my BVEG quote, if thus far only thou has the heart to go, then turn we back and play amidst the dust. Thanks, Miguel. So when I read this quote back, I was like, oh, that seems vaguely familiar, but I couldn't remember what it was from either. <laughs> yeah. So uh, so I looked it up and I realized that this is a quote I read in, in a previous episode um, where we were talking about an English translation of a 19th century Hungarian play – a play that involves Lucifer traveling through time with Adam and Eve, showing them scenes from throughout human history. And I think this quote is from a scene in the future where the devil takes Adam into space and Adam is afraid. And here's the, here's the really crazy part. This play is called The Tragedy of Man, and it was adapted into an animated film in 2011 by Marcel Yankovic, the ah. director of Son of the White Mare. We actually mentioned the movie in the, the Weird House Cinema episode, and it, it felt slightly familiar to me, but I wasn't sure. This is why. We actually talked about the play it was based on in another episode a while oh, back. Well, I'll be. Uh, but for, for more context on that quote, I figured uh, I might as well read a few lines here from that English translation. So this is from The Tragedy of Man, uh, and Lucifer and Adam are out in space, and Lucifer says, So high are we now risen, from the sight first fades the beautiful, and then the great, and mighty, till at length naught else remains to us than mathematics, cold, remote. And Adam says, Now fade the stars behind us as we fly. I see no end, I feel no obstacle. Without love, without conflict, what is life? Here all is cold and terror, Lucifer. And Lucifer says, if thus far only thou hast the heart to go, then turn we back and play amid the dust. Oh, nice. That Lucifer always had a way with words. Well, and I like that this passage is just him calling Adam chicken. <laughs> but it's difficult to translate. Bark, bark, bark. <laughs> well, that, that's certainly interesting synchronicity, though, with the, uh, the link uh, to Son of the White Mare. Now, in, in terms of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, yeah, like I said, I, I don't think I was familiar with uh, these, these, these Cobalt Press books, but I'll have to look these up. Uh, I have run a D&D campaign in the past, and if, if I can ever properly run something physically on a table again, I'll probably do one in the future. But for now, I'm, I'm happy to, to just be a player and, uh, and play uh, via like, some of these online systems that uh, have popped up to help people through the, through the pandemic. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm playing a, a Durgar right now. That's a, a gray dwarf. What a Durgar? Yeah, they're these uh, they're these gray dwarves that live in the Underdark. Um, 
they have you know magical powers and uh uh yeah they're they're pretty cool they have a lot of deep lore to them okay well i'm still relatively a novice i'm still playing in my in my first campaign as a player uh i don't know if i'll ever dm a campaign but if if i that's far in the future for me if it ever happens what level is your character oh my well i I don't know i could go dig it up we haven't we haven't gotten together in a bit uh I think uh, he's a rogue. I think maybe level four. Does that sound okay? That sounds reasonable? good. Yeah. Once you're by level four, you're getting into, into some good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. He's learning. He's got a special sleight of hand tricks and second story work and all that that kind nice. of stuff. Uh, I also want to come back to something Miguel mentioned about learning about so many of these creatures through uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and in, in this case, these these Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, uh, related books because I feel like I had much the same experience growing up. Um, you know, I had access to various uh, you know mythology books and so forth, but I was just su- always super into the monster manuals and the monster manual uh, mon- or monstrous compendium supplements that would come out. And mm-hmm. they you know they had all these different uh, additional worlds. You had stuff like uh, the Ravenloft monsters that would come out in the supplement, and then you had the the Caratur uh, supplement, which was uh, it had a bunch of monsters that were based on uh, on Asian motifs. And so that particular supplement was probably where I learned about a lot of things like uh, the Kappa and uh, the Oni and, and so forth for mm-hmm. the first time. Well, Rob, I think I, I think I know your personality well enough to recognize that you have a you have a particular affinity for encyclopedic resources on creatures and monsters. You love to have <laughs> like a you love to have them with like not just included in a narrative, but with like a full entry that gives you, gives you the stats, gives you the info. Right. I wish I would. I love it when my monsters line up in alphabetical order Mm -hmm. and, uh, and have some sort of rating system in place. I'm I'm a real sucker for that. So listeners out there, uh, if if you know of any other uh, good uh, monster books and bestiaries and so forth, uh, send them my way. I'm always delighted to learn about a new one, be it something recent or something ancient. I mean, that's that's where we we've uh, we've actually generated some uh, episodes out of that, like uh, realizing, oh, I don't really know much about this particular compendium of of uh, strange, uh, say, Chinese uh, mythological creatures. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. Oh, yeah, like the classic of the mountains and seas. Yeah. That, that was great. Yeah, that was basically me just jonesing for a new uh, monster book. <laughs> All right, we're going to go ahead and call it there, but uh, we'll be back next week with another episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind Listener Mail. That comes out on Mondays, and on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we put out the core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, uh, You know, primarily science and cultural, historical, philosophical content, that sort of thing. On Wednesdays, we do an artifact or, indeed, a monster fact episode where we focus on a particular uh, item, uh, invention, or or mythological creature. And then on Fridays, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious matters and just talk about a weird film. Um, If you want to find out more about any of this, uh, you can find all these episodes in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. Uh, Just, uh, you know, listen and subscribe wherever you you have the ability to access that. Uh, Rate and review if you want to help us out in that regard. Uh, And then if you go to stufftoblowyourmind.com, I think that'll still shoot you over to the iHeart listing for our show. So you can definitely listen to it there, but there are also some links there that will take you out to some of our various social media accounts, uh, as well as to the the, the, the Public store that we have, where you can also buy uh, some designs based on various episodes and, of course, just uh, revolving around our, our key logos. 
Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.